Thank you, worship team. Are we on? There we are. Excellent. They do such a good job. Good music and good songs. I'd like to welcome you all today. It's good to see you. Um, my name is Bob Lynch. I'm an elder here at West Cohasset. I'm in the pulpit today because Joe Franzone is on a couple weeks of a well-earned vacation. Uh, I trust that you coming here will be a blessing today. One blessing we'll all have is the fact that we'll be reading out a revelation. And God says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written. The time is near. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, in, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. And if you're using the church Bibles, it is on page 868. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word today. And we ask that you help us to take it to heart. Thank you that you are gracious, merciful, and kind. And you extend your kindness to us in innumerable ways. Father, today we would ask that you show yourself strong to all those who are serving you in all the different capacities. We also pray for our nation, that you would open its eyes to see that it is desperately dependent upon you to sustain the freedoms that we have, one of which is being able to worship here today. We would ask that our leaders would fall on their knees and worship you, the King of Kings. But if not, Lord, we know that this whole world is in your control and we can rest in you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I shared this in the first hour, but I guess it's worthy to share again. When I 
heard we were going to be preaching out of Revelation, my first thoughts were, uh, oh no. Uh, my mind immediately jumped to all the prophecy. I don't always understand, and it leaves me scratching my head sometimes, and you can see the results of that. But as often happens, God had some really good things to say. My hope for us is as we go through this, we will see Jesus a little clearer, his heart a little better, and ourselves more able to know his mind and make the changes in our lives that will please him. In looking at the church in Laodicea, I thought it best to give you a little geography lesson. Back to school, here we go. The city is located a little more than five miles away from a familiar name of another church called Colossae and fairly close to quite a few churches in that area. That area is called the Asia Minor or Turkey, which is on the north side of the Mediterranean and on the east side of the Aegean, of the Aegean Sea. The city was extremely wealthy. It was the banking center of the whole area. It had a very strong business and medical and textile industry also. It was a very self-sustaining and proud city. And a lot of the city's attitudes about life were permeating into the church. Not unlike our present day of Western civilization. After the persecution in Jerusalem that believers faced, many of them were scattered and spread the gospel into many areas of the world. Church history has it that this area was evangelized by Epaphras, and we've seen his name in, in the New Testament, and then later by the Apostle Paul as he saw this area as part of his mission field that God had given him. We see much evident of his concern in the New Testament as often documented how he risked his life and gave up personal comforts to teach them the ways of God in obedience to God's call on his life. So we have a church here, a group of people, who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have been saved by faith. At least we would hope that, and a lot of them were. But as time goes on, their desire to please Christ had waned to the point where discipline from Christ was certain lest they repent. Some even wondered if these were ever the children of God. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I'd like to go back and look at a previous scene is described in chapter 1 of Revelation, starting in verse 12. This is John talking. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I don't know about you, but I kind of would imagine ourselves in this scene. And I think we would all have the same response as John. We would probably fall as dead. Um, With this view of Jesus Christ fresh in our minds, I would like to point out a couple of things. In verse 12, it says that Jesus was walking among the lampstands. And in verse 16, we see him holding the stars in his right hand. Because of this, I see Jesus as a very hands-on Savior that cares so deeply about his church that he holds the pastors in the palm of his hands and literally walks among the churches. And his spirit is with us today as it was back in the time when he addressed the seven churches in the Revelation. I couldn't help but notice as I reviewed some of the previous chapters that in all the churches he tells them, I know There's nothing about that happened there or here that he doesn't know about. He knows every thought and intent of our heart. He knows the effort we put in, albeit sometimes feeble at times. And he knows the hurts among our church family. He knows how we often rub shoulders with one another. And we see our humanity. In the book of Psalms, it says, in Psalm 130, verse 3, if our iniquity or sin is to be measured, who could stand? He sees how our words and action can hurt each other, but he also sees how good churches can be. When biblical love and respect for all the different gifts and personalities serve for the good of the church. When we love the lost more than ourselves. When Christ's love is understood and abounds, and joy is the norm. Hebrews 12, Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the hearts. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So in light of that verse, sometimes we seem to judge self-righteously when we ourselves come up so awfully short. This can be somewhat convicting. He knows whose agenda we're following. And as the Jewish nation was the apple of his eye, so we are his prized possession. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Getting back to the text, we see the main purpose of stars and lamps. And lamp stands spoken of is for light and direction. As we look back in history... We see that God has used people to dispense his light many different times and ways. People like Abraham, 
Moses, Esther, David, and others in the Jewish nation, and now the church age. We see that light sometimes shines very dim, but other times it shines very bright. Often to keep the fire burning bright, God allows many trials to purify his children. He also allows persecution, as we see in the early church, and specifically, which we'll be studying soon, the church in Smyrna was asked to be faithful unto death. In all these circumstances, he did not take them out of trouble, but asked us sometime to suffer with him and for him. It seems that we need to be brought to the end of ourselves before we can be taught and used of God, especially when we realize there's nobody else that can help us. But even in this, God sees our suffering as light affliction compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. So he's got some great things ahead for us. In getting back to our text in Revelation 3.14, we see that Jesus tells John to tell the angel of the church of Laodicea in verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So by definition, the amen means the one in whom the revelation of God finds perfect fulfillment. Nothing can be added. Faithful and true witness has the distinction of saying that he is, of, he is a divine witness. He cannot lie. Absolute truth is his character. Whatever he says, he will, he will do. There is no deviation is totally trustworthy and also unchangeable. Ruler of God creation of God's creation means that he rules over all creation with absolute supreme authority. Colossians 1:15-16 said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus states in the Gospel of John that if you've seen him, you have seen the Father. In light of all this, he, all these truths about himself, he states, I know your deeds, and he's talking to the um, Laodiceans, I know your deeds, that they are neither hot nor cold. Their ability to discern the truth had been compromised by their lack of zeal from wayward, hard hearts. They were indifferent to the claims of Christ. They were familiar with this truth about lukewarmness. The water that they got from a nearby city of Colossae came through five miles of stone piping. By the time it arrived, it was warm and not very refreshing. It was not invigorating, invigorating, and it did not satisfy. Unless probably you were dying of thirst, but normally it would not satisfy. When you are really thirsty, there is nothing like a drink of cold water. It cools us internally and is very satisfying. In the spiritual realm, the living water of Jesus Christ is also very satisfying and leads to great contentment and purpose and eternal life. 
Many of us have felt how good a hot bath or shower feels on an aching body. The people of that day would have known what Jesus meant when he was talking about lukewarm water compared to hot. Just across the river was a city called Heropolis. The city was known for its healing hot springs. Lukewarm water, in comparison, has no healing benefits and wouldn't be appreciated much by anybody. In a sense, it would be good for nothing. Similar to a branch on a vine that bears no fruit or the salt without its savor. It's sad, but this was the spiritual state of these people in Laodicea. In my early years as a believer, a pastor gave me some good advice. He said that I needed to learn to encourage myself by using scripture truths. The people of Laodicea didn't have the ability to refresh their own souls at this time. Their light had really dimmed. Their spiritual state was as nauseating to God as the shallow sacrifices that Jewish people offered in the Old Testament when their hearts were cold. Matthew Henry, a preacher from a few centuries ago, stated, Lukewarmness lukewarmness towards Christ is a terrible place to be in. There is no room for neutrality. Christ expects that his people should declare themselves in earnest either for or against him. John Stott says that they lack the wholehearted devotion that Jesus deserves. I'm thankful that in this context, he said he was about to spit them out of his mouth, but he hadn't done so yet. There was still room to repent so they could drink of the water of life themselves and have the ability to share that gift with others who were willing to follow. He goes on to say in verse 17, You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This was not a, not a pretty report. It was very seething. It was 100% opposite of what God would want. They were spiritually poor, but not in spirit, or not poor in spirit. They could see, but had become blind. They clothed themselves with the rich black wool that was a status symbol in their area, but they were naked in God's sight. They were a pretty pitiful lot. But even though they had fallen so far, God offers them some great advice that would work. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. But they had to be willing to admit they were spiritually bankrupt. They had been focusing on the riches of this world rather than things above. They were living for earthly pleasures and majoring on that instead of wholeheartedly serving the one who truly loves them and wants them to have eternal treasures. In the Old Testament, God often called folks like that and sometimes us adulterers because they went after other gods. It all proves that there's nothing new under the sun. 
We were all like sheep tending to go astray. So whether there was a majority of believers or unbelievers in Laodicea, God is calling them to repent, to turn from their sin and turn back to God. So he counsels them to buy from him gold refined in the fire. In contrast, James 5.3 says, your gold and silver, and James was talking to the rich people of his day, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you. Such was their state. But even so, we can be totally honest with God no matter where we're at, because he will meet us where we're at. He will meet us right where we're living, and he won't degrade us or chastise us for coming humbly in repentance. And God is always so right in his ways. Proverbs 8, 15 through 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor and enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is far better than fine gold, and what I yield surpasses choice silver. God wants us to yield to him and his word, and often when I read those passages, they speak to my heart. In Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to the Lord. If they would have been practicing this, they would have not have become so complacent. So we get a picture of the Laodiceans clothing themselves with things that don't profit. They were trusting in their lofty position and had been ignoring their real purpose. And yet we still see Christ standing at their door of their heart, wanting to have fellowship with them. Our God is so patient. He wants them to know again the joy of his nearness. To experience the great blessing of God using them for his purposes in the world. To know we are just dust, and yet he gives so many good gifts. And one of those good gifts is repentance. I'm reminded of a song by Ron Hamilton. I don't know how many of you know any of his music, but he was pretty popular back in a long time ago in, in the 80s. But it goes like this. I'm not going to sing. No, I'm not going to sing. Master Potter, why do you labor all day, giving such effort to rough, worthless pieces of clay? Why such feeling in your hands? Why such care in every touch? Why all the struggle? Your creation is nothing but dust. God is working with us to mold a masterpiece. He doesn't give up on us. He's always striving to conform us to his image. It's not always easy. Um, To the Laodiceans, he was offering them white clothes of righteousness to wear and salve for the eyes so that they can see. In Psalm 119, verse 130, God says, The entrance of my words bring light. Even with all the admonishment he has given them, he wants them to know that he loves them because in verse 19 he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. So he loves them as a father, and he wants them to earnestly change their minds about the way they are living and come back to a vibrant, fruitful way of life. He is anxious to draw near to them. He says, I'm standing at the door. If you listen and open the door of your heart, that inner person that only God really knows, he will then be there with open arms for us. Then he gives a promise for all who overcome through him, just as he overcame. We will be brought to sit with him at his throne with his father. And I don't know about you, but man, oh man, that's, that's a privilege I just can't hardly comprehend. As he identifies with us and we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we will be able to sit with him on his throne to assist in carrying out justice. And this justice will now be perfect because of the state we'll be in at that time. All his moral character will be ours. Our sin and death that it brings will be gone forever. In closing, as they had let their light go dim, often like them, we need to repent and keep our eyes focused on Jesus and not on the things or those around us. Comparing ourselves to one another, the scripture says, is not wise. And all of us so much need discernment from God to avoid the snares of the flesh and the evil one. Because like it or not, the devil is out to destroy us. As I'm writing this, I was sitting at the table and I looked out the window and a, and a young doe had come into the yard. She was so cautious, her ears were moving all over and she was approaching the highway and I thought, all the dangers of predators, man and traffic, and disease and everything are trying to destroy her also. And we're all just a heartbeat away from death. And it made me so glad that I'd put my faith in Jesus Christ. I know he's going to come through. He already has come through. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, seen in yourself the need to be forgiven by his once-for-all once sacrifice, please accept his gift. I would be telling you a terrible lie if I, t if I said that hell didn't exist. Jesus suffered an excruciating death to pay for all our sin. Knowing there's nothing we can do to add to our own righteousness, we need the eternal life he offers so desperately. There's many in this room that would help you if you had any questions, myself included. Uh, we'd love to see you make this decision. May God grant all of us the ability to be right with him today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him, or by me. Let's pray.